did. She looked just like that, actually. Yeah, you look like you are on a butter container. Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are doing part three of Israel Keys. Part three of how many parts, Katie? Four. It was supposed to be three. It's four. It's going to end at four? Yes. Can we stretch it out to some more? No, I'm done with this. <laughs> and why don't you go ahead and refresh the listeners as to where you did your research? The book for this one was American Predator by Maureen Callahan, and then I also used the SPLC's website for some other information. SPLC. What does that stand for? Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh-huh. Well, this yeah. was a recommendation, and this was a recommendation by Jake's sister, Elise. It was. Still a good recommendation. Katie's over it, though. And where did we leave off last week, Katie? When we left off last week, Keyes had just given FBI agents and U.S. Attorney Kevin Feldes a full confession to the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Koenig. After her remains were recovered by the FBI's dive team, agents grew suspicious that Keyes was a much more experienced criminal than they originally believed. After finding hundreds of photos of potential missing persons on his laptop, they knew they needed to keep him talking. Which he was doing... Pretty much nonstop by himself anyways, right, at this point? It was like a give and take. There was next episode we'll cover when he gave more information into some other crimes, and then he pretty much stopped, which if you want to watch those, they're all on YouTube and they're awful. Are they long and boring? Um, I watched six hours of him and Kevin Feldes talking. What was the highlight of those six hours? It ending. They first wanted to know more about his background and just how he got to this point. Keyes admitted that he treated two books like textbooks of serial killing, Dark Dreams, Sexual Violence, Homicide, and The Criminal Mind by Roy Hazelwood, a famous FBI agent known for his work in sex crimes, and Mindhunter by John Douglas, one of the founders of the Behavioral Analysis Unit of the FBI and the pioneer of criminal profiling. Keyes had also extensively studied Ted Bundy and viewed him as a role model. So is he basically using true crime to educate himself to the point of being able to stay a step ahead of the detectives? Kind of. I mean, I guess you could consider like Mindhunter and, and Dark Dreams true crime, but they're more of basically FBI agents teaching you how they think and how they solve crimes, which I think would be more detrimental to yeah, why are crime they letting, solving. Why are they letting them in on the... All the secrets of the trade, the tricks of the trade. That's like the rule number one. You keep your tricks to the trade of yourself. Because John Douglas is a cocky bastard and he wants everyone to know about his accomplishments and how many crimes he's solved. Serial killers are not heroes, though. They're not people to be looked up to. So it kind of takes a certain type of individual to see this person as a personal hero, right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, it takes another serial killer or aspiring serial killer, but... Even the people that just learn about them just to know about the killer themselves and not, I don't know, I guess the psychology behind it or anything mm. about the victims, is it gets weird. True crime is a very strange genre. I see. A lot of blurry lines. Key's childhood, though, was textbook for a serial killer. He was interviewed by a forensic psychologist on April 27th to ensure that he was mentally sound to be executed like he wanted. Keyes was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978. Cove is so tiny. How tiny is it? Uh, 
I think we drove through it on the way to Idaho once, and it might have been through, like, Cache County or something like that. It was, like, far north Utah, and I think the population was, I don't know. It was tiny. It was huge. Like, it was real spread out, but it was, like, five people that we saw. Hmm. That's not a lot of people in a, in a town. No. His parents, Heidi and Jeff, met in Los Angeles and quickly fell in love. Both were raised devout Mormons and had little life experience outside of Girl Scouts and missionary service. One thing they knew was that they wanted to raise their children as close to nature as possible. A good place to do this, and to be Mormon, was Utah. They had their first child, America, in 1976, a daughter who was delivered at home by Jeff. Neither Jeff nor Heidi believed in modern medicine and wanted nothing to do with doctors, hospitals, or vaccines. America, Israel, and their eight other children were homeschooled and, if you ask the government, didn't exist. Is it possible that some intern, rather than just, you know, registering the 10 children's births, had accidentally registered them for a United Nations conference? What intern, though? Look, we don't blame interns. They're not paid, okay? That's actually what he referred to Heidi as, was intern. None of the children had social security numbers or birth certificates, and they rarely left the house. When Jeff and Heidi had just America and Israel, neighbors grew concerned and reported them to Child Protective Services. The threat of government intervention caused the keys to up and move to the middle of bumfuck nowhere in Colville, Washington. Jeff purchased 160 acres to ensure no neighbors would ever stick their noses in their business ever again. That's a pretty good chunk of land. Yeah. And they, I think they lived, like, right dead center of it. That's a paranoia, right? I mean, like, I gotta have 160 acres of privacy. Land was cheap, I guess, in Colville, and so I think it was more of just, this is available and my kids can never get away. <laughs> they lived in a small cabin without heat, running water, plumbing, or electricity for seven years while Jeff worked as an appliance repairman. He claimed to be building them a house on their 160 acres, but he insisted on doing everything himself, including chopping the trees down. The children, who Jeff and Heidi considered free labor, helped on occasion, but the house slowly but surely never got built. I mean, really, they had that little cabin. What more could they ask for? A toilet. Uh, yeah, maybe some running water and some heat. They were short on money, but children kept coming, making it difficult to feed and clothe them. All were forced to wear hand-me-down clothing that was usually far too small. In Israel's case, his toes were permanently disfigured from wearing two small shoes for so long. You gotta cut the toes out of those shoes. Allow the growth. Your toes then become useless. What do you mean? Like they get all wet and trench footy and you have to cut them off. Well then maybe this lady should have cut her tubes instead. Hmm. The children were raised by the Bible, memorizing scripture as soon as they were able to read. They were not permitted any outside source of entertainment. Rather, they were stuck inside a tiny cabin with really nothing to do but read the Bible. Was this the Bible or the Book of uh, Mormon? Um, I'm sure they read both. I don't think they were, like, practicing Mormons at this point, but aren't they usually contained together? No, not really. The one I found was a Bible and a Book of Mormon. No, that's not the usual. That is unique. You ain't supposed to mix the religions like that. I thought they still read the Bible, do they not? It makes God angry. It's not really a main part of their teachings. Their teachings come from the Book of Mormon. 
they say they still believe in the New Testament, but I don't believe them. You don't trust the Mormons? No, not when it comes to La Biblioteca. Because Heidi couldn't stop having children, the cabin ran out of room extremely fast. During the summers, Israel and the older children were forced to live in a tent outside. During the winter, Heidi would send them to California to live in a trailer on their grandmother's property. To make matters worse, Heidi and Jeff eventually left Mormonism and found a much more unique religion. So they found a cult. They were already in a cult. They found a different cult. <laughs> unique usually signifies, like, we're unique. We're a cult. They joined a church called the Ark, which was a Christian identity group. According to the SPLC, Christian identity groups are somewhat unique anti-Semitic hate groups that believe white people are the true Israelites favored by God in the Bible. Founded originally in Britain, they claimed that modern Europeans are descended from the lost tribes mentioned in the Old Testament and that Jewish people are the satanic offspring of Adam and Eve. <laughs> the lost tribes, huh? How many lost tribes were there, do they think? Um... Wasn't this a part of... There were 40 lost tribes of Israel. 40? Yeah. There was, what, the Babylonians and... Uh, there's the Sephardic. There's there's tons of Yeah. Them. So they think that basically white people are God's children and everyone else are no good. They basically just hated Jewish people? Well, they hated everyone that wasn't uh, white. They were racist, anti-Semitic. They were anti-government. They were... Good old boys. They were elected in 2016. Most modern anti-Semitic hate groups are based off of Christian identity, which has fallen out of favor in recent times. I wasn't able to find anything on the specific church that Keys were a part of, but basically they were a militia-based, fuck-the-government hate group. I don't know why, but going into this, I was like, oh, I'll just Google it and I'll be able to find all this information, which I realized quickly you can't just Google anti-Semitic churches and, like... Google will just tell you openly yeah. where to find them. So they, they all are. just advertise up top. You need to go on the dark webs for that, I think. Come to the anti-Semitic church. No Jews allowed. But then, like, I don't know how you would stumble into a church like this if you live in 160 acres and never leave the house. Well, you, you got to just... go, go find a church. Like, that's the thing. So they probably, like, wandered around until someone was like, you know where our church is? And the guy was like, boy, do I have an offer for you. What's that new social media that they have? Grinder. <laughs> no, the one where supposedly you don't get censored. Oh, the like Trump one that everyone Trump moved one, to. Yeah. Oh, Trumper. <laughs> kind of like I Twitter, don't... but it's... well, that's where I think you find the anti-Semitic churches is on there, probably. Probably, probably the main supporters and backers of the. Also, a part of this quote-unquote church were the Kehoe brothers, Chevy and Shane. We could do a whole other episode on these two, but both were eventually arrested for getting into a shootout with police after Chevy murdered a family of three. Keyes was good friends with the brothers and their family, who at the time were planning a race war. Do we know what brilliance was contained in the plan for that race war? I didn't look in. It was mostly their father that wanted to ignite a race war, and I didn't really look into him much, but I assume it was not good. Mm. Or smart. <laughs> I assume it was just a bunch of racist shit. It probably was the scene from, uh, oh, what fucking movie is it where they got their, is it Django where they got their hoods on and he's all pissed off because his wife spent all the time cutting the holes in the eye holes in the hoods. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, <laughs> that's just what it probably was. Keyes had been obsessed with guns since he was six, but the Kehoe brothers really ignited his fascination. 
He said that his parents grew concerned, but there was little that they could do to stop him. Kehoe's a pretty cool name. Except for when you're racist. Yeah. When you're racist. Reminds me of welding. Pop open the keyhole. Oh, yeah, your kids are going to be named Tig, Tungsten, and Keyhole. (laughs) Israel's life of crime began early. He and his younger sister, Charity, would sneak off into the woods and shoot BB guns at houses, usually breaking windows, and if no one was there, breaking in. Eventually, Keyes had to end his close relationship with his sister as she told too many people about their adventures together, and Keyes' parents became even more concerned. I had to break off a friendship with one of my friends who told on me for shooting cows in the butt with a BB gun on my 10th birthday. Got my BB gun. That I got for my birthday, taken away. Same day. Same day. Maybe be better next time and don't shoot cows. Keyes hit a hallmark of serial killing when he was 14, when he shot an animal in the woods. He wasn't sure if it was a cat or a dog, but his friend who watched him freaked out, and Keyes decided he was done doing things with company. He would satiate his urges alone from that point on. The only time he killed anything else in front of people was when he killed his sister's cat. Apparently, it kept getting into the trash, and Keyes told his sister if it happened again, he was going to kill it. The next time it happened, he grabbed the cat and took it into the forest. Using parachute cord, he tied it to a tree by its neck and then shot it in the stomach. The cat didn't immediately die, and Keyes stood and laughed while his distraught sisters watched. That's really fucked up. What does his parents actually do about that? Nothing, really. I'm sure they gave him, like, a stern talking to, and then they were like, oh, he's fine. They should have taken his gun away. Fuck this guy. Yeah, fuck this guy. I don't like anything, any part of this, but that last part's, you know. His father was very, I think, uninvolved in the family, and... Keyes was very large. He was over six feet, and I think by the time he was 14, 15, he was pretty close to six feet, and so I'm sure his mother was, one, terrified of him, and two, he also had guns. So Mm. what are you going to do in that situation? Shoot him. Shoot him dead. Save the whole world a whole lot of problems. She's got nine others. I think she'd be fine without one. Well, it depends. She could mess up negotiations. At 15, Keyes grew tired of living with his parents, who were probably extremely concerned about his behavior. Over the course of a year, he built a cabin of his own a mile away from his parents and officially moved out a year later. He would spend his free time hunting, not for food, but for fun. He taught himself to sit extremely still for hours on end, waiting for prey to cross his path. He would watch people too, thinking how easy it would be to kill them from the time he was 13 or 14 years old. The FBI would later come to believe Keyes put this skill to use in national parks. At 16, Keyes was arrested for shoplifting, and his parents finally had enough. He was forced to move back home after they found his cabin was stocked full of stolen guns. Not long later, Keyes told his parents that he no longer believed in organized religion. Even though they had left the Ark after Waco, they were still devout believers. Jeff disowned Israel, and eventually a few more of the children expressed their doubts in God. The Keys decided they needed to get out of Washington and move to Maupin, Oregon. I probably butchered that. They lived in tents while Israel and Jeff built a house, which they sold and moved again in 1997, this time to Malone, New York. A year later, they decided Amish living sounded good, so they moved to Smyrna, Maine, and made honey. 
I was more surprised that they actually completed building that house than that they thought they'd be good at making honey. This isn't the first episode we've talked about Smyrna. It's not. And I don't think making honey is difficult. You don't have to do very the, much of the work. <laughs> yeah, the bees do you all You have the to work. get stung a lot. You don't, though. They're very, bees are actually pretty docile. Docile motherfuckers. Key stayed behind in New York and got his GED, which allowed him to join the Army in 1998. He was stationed first in Fort Hood in Texas, then at Fort Lewis in Washington, and finally spent a six-month stint in Egypt. He was briefly addicted to cocaine, but gave it up in exchange for drinking, which he did heavily every single night. During his time in the military, Keyes was engaged to a woman in Colville, who was deeply religious and believed Keyes was too. She believed that she and Keyes were saving their virginities to give to each other on their wedding night. For whatever reason, American Predator mentioned that Keyes attended his first rock concert, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and said that his fiance knew nothing about it which leads me to believe that it would have been a huge problem along with his alcohol and cocaine abuse. He probably just said to her, if you have to ask, out in LA, snow, hey yo, it's just a minor thing, especially in Michigan, so tell me, baby, what is soul? Oh, it sounds like a coke note you would write to your <laughs> girlfriend. Probably more concerning to her would have been that Keys would sometimes seek out sex workers and that he was bisexual. That was a problem for her? That his virginity was gone? Yes. <laughs> oh. And that he was sleeping, maybe, with men. While interviewing some of his old army buddies, detectives learned of a highly concerning story from when Keyes was stationed in Egypt. Apparently, one night, Keyes and some other men went to a hotel and hired a sex worker. The book only mentions one, so I believe that they were all sharing a suite, and each would go into the bedroom one at a time. When it was Keyes' turn, he went into the bedroom for around half an hour, when suddenly the door flew open and the woman ran out, obviously terrified about something. Keys got in the front of the door so she couldn't leave the hotel room and tried to give her money, but she wouldn't take it, and she kicked Keys hard enough to get him to move so she could get out of the room. When they asked what the fuck happened, Keys said that he had just thrown her around a little because she was trying to run the show. More than likely, Keys strangled her. I mean, yeah, they probably were all like... Well, you went sixth, and she didn't try to steal the show for any of us, buddy, so. Yeah. They probably didn't believe him, right? I mean, what do you, I don't, yeah, I don't know what exactly happened after that. I think the night probably just ended, and everyone went home confused. She was fine for me. What about you, Jim? Yeah, yeah. What about you, Jerry? Mm-hmm. Alan? She was great. Bill? Didn't try to control anything. There was also a Norwegian exchange student that Keyes had met in Tel Aviv. Keyes said that she told him where her dorm room was, so he went over to see her one night. From the way it's described, I don't think she was expecting him, and I don't think she particularly wanted him to be there. He said that there was some hanging out, which didn't make it a quote-unquote outright rape, but he lost control as things progressed. It was at this point that Keyes realized that if he was going to act like this, and if he was going to fulfill his urges, he needed to do it with strangers to keep himself safe from being caught. He did, however, make a friend that he could discuss these urges with. He referred to him as Perkins, and their friendship started out normal enough. Eventually, though, they began discussing how to commit crimes, and what Keyes was planning once he was out of the military. Where do you meet this Perkins individual, do we know? In the military. They were army buddies. I think they were in the same unit. Perkins told detectives that Keyes planned to rob a string of banks along a desolate highway. 
He also discussed his plan to kidnap people on a mass scale and hold them for ransom. When they asked Perkins if he was at all shocked that Keyes had been arrested for kidnap and murder, Perkins said, quote, I'm surprised he got caught. He was smarter than that. Other men in Key's unit that didn't know him as well as Perkins agreed that he was fucking weird. <laughs> they said he was awkward and most likely a virgin. There were differing accounts of his behavior. Some said that he was violent and broke a man's nose. Others said that he would take punches and not even react. For the most part, they knew that there was something deeply wrong with him and to basically avoid him unless they absolutely had to. In 2000, while still engaged, Keyes met a woman named Tammy. They began seeing each other and quickly bonded over their oddly similar childhoods. After two months together, Tammy was pregnant. Keyes wanted her to have an abortion, but Tammy decided to keep the baby. After finally breaking things off with his fiance, Keyes changed his mind and decided that he did indeed want the baby. He and Tammy got back together, and after his discharge from the army, they bought a house together on a reservation. Keyes quickly began exhibiting strange behavior, along with drinking significant amounts of alcohol every night. He branded himself with an inverted cross on his chest, which makes me have more in common with Keyes than I'd like, and a pentagram on the back of his neck. Was Keyes an actual Satanist, or did he just use it as like an excuse to do what he wanted to do? He said that he looked into Satanism because he believed that there had to be an explanation in it why he was the way he was and he had and why he had such dark fantasies. He thought that maybe Satanists all felt the same way he did and he could potentially find like-minded people. He dabbled in it for a bit before he realized that to believe in Satan you have to believe in God and he definitely didn't believe in God. Once he realized that I think he dropped religion altogether, and he accepted that he was basically just fucked up. So he never thought to, like, see a psychiatrist, maybe? Or maybe get real help instead of just trying to read a fucking bunch of random-ass religious books? Well, he turned to the highest help he could think of. I think, I mean, I think partially, too, it was like a rebellion from his parents where this was the opposite of everything they'd ever taught him. And I don't know if... He really knew that psychologists could help him with stuff like this because he's never seen a doctor or a dentist or anything like that. So I don't know if he really knew that people he just talked to existed. He'd never seen a dentist? No. He never saw any sort of... Did he have halitosis? Probably. Probably extreme black buildup. Call him Israel the Stank Breath. Keys and Tammy's daughter was born in November of 2002 and their relationship quickly began to deteriorate. Tammy was diagnosed with uterine cancer and had to have a complete hysterectomy, which eventually led to an opiate addiction. Was Keyes trying to have a bunch of kids like his parents had, or he just wanted the one kid? I don't even think he wanted the one kid. It was an accident, and he wanted her to have an abortion, so he wasn't seeking children. It just <laughs> happened, and then he was like, okay, well, I guess I'll roll with it. Keys took over all parenting duties, leaving Tammy to nod out day in and day out. Keys took fatherhood very seriously, and his daughter was probably the only thing that he ever truly loved. In 2004, he was done with Tammy and her addiction and bought a house of his own. He met Kimberly the next year, and the two began dating. Tammy was still very much in love with Keys and wanted their relationship and her daughter back, but she knew she didn't have a chance while still addicted to opiates. The opportunity for reconciliation came when she got into a car wreck and was arrested for OWI. 
She was given a short jail stint in order to go to rehab, where she got sober and came out feeling ready to win Keys back. Even while Keys was dating Kimberly, Tammy began coming around the house more often, and the two eventually began having sex again. She thought the relationship was far more serious than it was, but after a while, she realized he was more interested in Kimberly, and she left him. Did Kimberly know about all this goings-on? I'm not entirely sure, honestly. I don't think they... I don't know if they were really that serious at the time, and so I don't know if it would have mattered to her, but Keys would basically sometimes hang out with Tammy and then other times bail on her to go see Kimberly. That fits his uh, good guy persona, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Around early 2007, Keys let Tammy know that Kimberly was moving to Alaska and he was going to join her. Tammy, feeling spiteful, decided to take him to court and fight for custody of their daughter. Despite how much he loved her, Keyes wasn't all that interested in a long, drawn-out custody battle, so he told Tammy to keep their daughter. He was moving anyways. So I guess his daughter wasn't that important to him, after all. I mean, realistically, there's only so much emotion that he had in there, and I think it didn't extend that far. Oh, he spent it all. Yeah, in the first couple years of her life, and he was like, meh. He had his little psychopath storage of emotion, and he just busted it all. I'm not entirely sure how their daughter came to be living in Anchorage when he was arrested. Keyes moved to Anchorage in 2007, first making some stops in California and Mexico. Detectives would later learn from notebooks that Keyes was traveling to Mexico for surgery and dental work. Finally. They didn't know exactly what he had done, but it was mostly cosmetic, along with a lap band. They quickly realized that Keyes drove for hours on end while on his sprees, going as much as 12 hours without eating. The most logical explanation was that Keyes had the lap band surgery, and possibly others, to allow himself to become the perfect serial killer. This guy is pretty much next level fucked up. Won't a lap band make a person who's not obese kind of deteriorate away? I mean, it limits how much you can eat at a time, but you're still eating. You're still getting... It basically reduces your calorie intake to the appropriate amount for your body. So if you're not obese, you're still going to be eating a semi-decent enough amount to keep you going. Did he get any facial changes made or anything while he was down there trying to disguise himself at all? He didn't get any, like, nose job or anything done, but I think he got Botox. But that might have been, like, in his armpits, so he didn't sweat. (laughs) Because your sweat sweat contains your DNA. So if you're sweating at a crime scene and they find it, that could lead to trouble. Huh. Well, that's interesting, actually. Is it hard? It's got to be hard to find the sweat, though. Or does it glow, too? No. It's, I mean, it's difficult to find, but it's... Still there. ...a potential source of evidence that he didn't want to be leaving behind. Never leave a trace. Is that going to do it for this week, Katie? That is it for this week. All right, guys, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to check us out on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to follow... And don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a review on Spotify. No, that's backwards. Don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, 
where you can find a 100% full episode list, since I finished that today. And you can also submit an idea for an episode you might want to hear, or you can get your free sticker by entering the code BINGOBANGO at checkout in our merch store. We'll send it out to you 100% for free. So this week, if anybody asks you who the worst person in the whole world has ever been, it might be Israel Keys. You might think about saying that. You can think about it. All right, guys. Adios, motherfuckers. You're not going to say anything? You you normally say bye or something, and then I say see ya. All right, guys. Talk to you later. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. Little butter girl America, Katie. (laughs)